Y'all have no idea how good that stand, sounds standing up here. Oh, I love, I love to hear God's people praise Him. I love thinking about the idea we're, we're talking about in our series right now, God becoming man, what it means for Jesus to say that He is the Son of Man. We talked about last week, we looked at Psalm 8, we talked about how in Jesus, Jesus being the perfect human being, Jesus being exactly what humanity should have been, and that in Jesus, we not only see what real, true humanity looks like, but even better, we are invited to become really and truly human in Jesus. We're invited to be born again to be his brothers and sisters. That he's not just an example for us, but that he causes us to be reborn into this new human family. And that this human family of which Jesus is head, this human family will be like Jesus, crowned with, remember the words from last week, glory and honor and given dominion. That's what Psalm, two, or Psalm 8 says, and Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus is the firstborn of what is to come. That there is so much hope in this gospel. But I want, I want to confess something to you, a misunderstanding that I've had most of my life, most of my Christian life, something I haven't understood about the gospel and I wonder, maybe I'm alone in this assumption, maybe others have made this assumption, and maybe some of us have just never really stopped to think about this at all, but I, I assumed that Jesus became a human being, that's what John 1 says, right, the word that was with God and was God, that this divine word became a human, right, he was born, laid in a manger, and that he spent 33 years being human, and then when he ascended, I assumed, and this was a faulty assumption, I assumed he was done being human. And, and I often hear us say, even in, in our thoughts and prayers, we, we sometimes say, and I'm, I'm not sure always what we mean by saying Jesus was human, but I know what I meant by that because I assumed that his humanity lasted for 33 years and then it was done. That, that his humanity was a, a mission trip, so to speak. He came down, he, he did his human thing, and then he went back to heaven and he stopped being human. That's what I've always assumed. Now, I don't know if you've made that assumption too, but not only, not only is that not what the scriptures teach us, but we're actually missing a huge part of the gospel if we don't understand that Jesus not only was human, but Jesus is human. And when I say human, I don't mean mortal, right? Because he's immortal and imperishable, raised from the dead, never to die again, the one who was dead but is now alive and is alive forevermore. But he is, as Paul says to Timothy, he is a man. And his humanity, his current perpetual humanity what he's doing now as a human 
is just as important as what he did during his 33 years on the earth as a human. What he's doing now in his humanity is incredibly important. So whether you knew that already or you didn't know that, you assumed like I did that he was done being human or you just never stopped to even think about that because who thinks about that kind of stuff on a regular basis? Maybe you've never thought about it, but whether you have or you haven't, I think we will all be incredibly blessed because I think, I think theology changes our life. Amen? I think when we rightly understand the gospel, I don't think that anything else can change us and affect us and change the way we actually live our lives more than good, right theology. So I think not only will we be blessed by a better understanding of Jesus' continual humanity and his continual reign, but I think our neighbors will be blessed by us understanding this better. I think our families will be blessed by us understanding this better. I think our coworkers will be blessed by us understanding this better. I think our, our fellow students, if you're in school, will be blessed by us understanding the current reign of Jesus. And in order to understand this Son of Man language, not only is Psalm 8 a good place, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go read Psalm 8, but so is Daniel chapter 7. Now, in Daniel, Daniel, of course, was a young man when he was essentially kidnapped by the Babylonian Empire came to Judah where Daniel and his friends lived. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that they eventually destroyed Jerusalem and took over Judah. But before they destroyed Jerusalem, they took a lot of young people back to Babylon to sort of brainwash them and reprogram them and teach them how to be Babylonian. And so they took a bunch of these Jewish young men out of Judah and into Babylon, and Daniel was one of those young men. Can you even imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine if today some foreign empire took over Collin County and deported a bunch of us and relocated us to a different place, and we essentially became... Daniel was had a pretty cushy life as a slave, but he was a slave. He was a captive. And that's exactly the sort of life that he lived in. In fact, so much so that being faithful to God often caused him to come right face to face with death, didn't it? And Daniel and his friends learned that even in the fiery furnace and even in the lion's den, God is in charge and God does not forget his people and God will lift his people up. And then after Daniel has some of these experiences that the first six chapters tell us about, then starting in chapter 7, then the second half of the book, we, we hear about these visions, these crazy dreams and visions that Daniel had and the things that God was telling Daniel about the future. Again, God doesn't forget his people and God will raise his people up. So in Daniel chapter 7, it's an interesting chapter, but we see these visions of four beasts. So there are four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Let's kind of think about them real quick. Four beasts in Daniel 7. The first one is a lion with eagle's wings. Okay, just imagine, and Daniel sees this sea, this tumultuous sea that's being turned up, and all of a sudden these monsters, right? I was going to put pictures on the screen of what these visions might have looked like, but I don't want to scare anybody. But it'd be a scare. It's a nightmare, isn't it? It's exactly what Daniel is seeing, a nightmare for monsters like you've never seen before, a lion with eagle's wings. And then he sees a bear with three ribs in his mouth 
And then he sees a leopard, and the leopard has four wings and four heads. And then finally, last of all, he sees this beast that's just a beast. It's unlike anything else. And it's terrible, and it's strong. It has ten horns, and it has iron teeth. It is dreadful and exceedingly strong. And then three of the horns get plucked out and this little bitty horn comes in in the place of the three horns and then the little horn starts boasting of big stuff. And I mean, it's just kind of a crazy dream and Daniel doesn't know what to make of this vision until it's explained to him. And when it's explained to him, it becomes pretty obvious that the beasts represent kings and kingdoms. And these horns represent kings, terrible, powerful. And this is kind of what what world empires have been like, haven't they? Throughout history, huge, terrible beasts. Babylon, that had captured Daniel and his friends, was like that. And wouldn't you feel like this kingdom is a monster that has destroyed my home and destroyed my people and taken us as captives to live in a foreign land. They are monsters. And and, and these, these kingdoms represent those sorts of kingdoms, or these monsters represent those sorts of kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And those are probably the kingdoms that God is communicating to Daniel about, but there have been all kinds of kingdoms even since then that have been monsters and beasts, haven't there? Kingdoms that have come in and have enslaved people. Kingdoms that have come in and oppressed people. Kingdoms that have come in and slaughtered indigenous people. There have been these sorts of monsters since the beginning. There continue to be these sorts of beasts. And God wants Daniel to know something about these beasts and something about his charge in the world. So look at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. So again, he sees these monsters coming up out of the sea, and then it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, God, Yahweh. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. Judgment of whom? Judgment of the monsters, right? The lion and the leopard and the bear and this beast with ten horns and this little horn that's boasting of great things. Verse 11, I look then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I love it. All this buildup, these huge monsters with teeth of iron and wings and heads and all of these terrible, powerful things. And then all of a sudden, the ancient of days, God sits down and says, okay, it's time to meet your maker. It's time for judgment. And just like that, the beast is dead. And just like that, the dominion of the beast is taken away. Just like that, God wins. (laughs) As if it's nothing 
He just snaps his fingers and these beasts that seem so big and unsurmountable, these beasts that seem so powerful and terrible and great, they're done because God is in charge. It's the same thing Daniel lived out in the lion's den, isn't it? These terribly great beasts and God shut their mouths. It's the same thing that his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived out in the fiery furnace. This fire that's so hot and terrible that it even burned up the people that threw them in the furnace. And God says, you don't have to worry about any of that because you're my people. And these beasts, these empires and kingdoms and kings that seem so horrible and great and powerful, I will take care of them. And just like that, the beast is dead. And just like that, dominion is taken away from the beast. Now, look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, a couple things. Make sure we're picturing this right. What's the scene that we're picturing in our mind? We're we're picturing the, the courtroom, as it were, in heaven, aren't we? And, and God is there, and the books are open, judgment happens. And so here we are in heaven, where the Ancient of Days is, and all of a sudden Daniel saw, saw a son of man. And, and what we talked about that last week in Psalm 8, what does son of man mean? It means a human, right? A human. A human, a special human, is taken up with the clouds. Sometimes when we talk about the Son of Man on the clouds, we picture the Son of Man coming, coming back, coming down. But Daniel's picturing a Son of Man being lifted up on the clouds. The Son of Man, a human being, is being lifted up and presented to Yahweh, to the Ancient of Days. And what does it say about him? Verse 14, and to him, here's, here's the shocking thing, and it echoes exactly along with what we talked about in Psalm 8 that says this, this is what humanity was supposed to have, and this is what humanity was supposed to be. And to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Do you see? All the dominion was taken away from the beasts, and dominion was given to whom? This son of man figure, this, this human being that somehow is being lifted up and presented to, before the, the ancient of days and to him was given the dominion and the glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, and the word in the English, English standard version is translated serve him, but every time that word, that Aramaic word is found, it's always talking about serving a deity. <laughs> Worship him. Worship him. Isn't this just a bizarre scene? All of the beasts of the world are destroyed, and then dominion is taken away from them and given to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the nations and all the peoples, all the languages should serve him, should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The, 
the power and the dominion of the beast is taken away and given to the Son of Man who ascends to the court of God and is crowned with glory and honor and given dominion. And then all of the peoples and the nations of the world worship him, this human figure. Now, again, I said it last week, and we'll say it a thousand more times, that Jesus is God, right? Jesus is the word of God, the divine word of God who has become human. But Daniel's vision is of this human one, this son of man, who continues to reign with glory and honor and dominion. And all the nations and the peoples of the earth worship and serve him. The the whole point of the good news about Jesus is that he is the son of man. He is divine, but yet he's human. And what we're saying when we're saying good news, we're saying the beasts no longer have dominion. We're saying that the Son of Man now reigns, that the one who is fully divine, yet fully human, reigns in heaven. And isn't this exactly what happened? What what Daniel's seeing is a Son of Man lifted up on the clouds, right? And he's presented to the Ancient of Days, and then he begins to reign, and he reigns forevermore. And isn't this exactly what happens in the Ascension? I mean, so often when I was young, I I would read the Ascension and I would think, okay, I guess that means the story's over. That Jesus just left. That Jesus did what he came to do. He offered himself as a sacrifice and then it's over. No, it's just begun. It's just begun. This new era of human history in which everything is different, everything has changed. Before... The word, the logos, the the word of God shared with the Father the glory in heaven, but now the word has become a human. And as a human, he shares with the Father the glory in heaven. That means, here's the thing, that means one of our own is in heaven for us. One of our own. I think about I think about the fact that we live in a a representative democracy, right? We live in a republic. And that means we send representatives for us to represent us in the government, right? And, And it feels good to know I'm represented. One of my people, somebody from my neck of the woods, somebody that understands my situation, that understands my group, they're representing me. Good news. Good news. One who is fully human, reigns on the throne. Isn't this exactly what the Hebrew writer is explaining to them? You have a high priest who can sympathize with every weakness because he has been where you are. He represents us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, the anthropos, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. He's our mediator. John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My dear children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an 
advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. That word advocate is parakletos. It means a representative. It's almost like a defense attorney, somebody that he's got your interests in mind. He's representing you. That's the good news. The good news is Jesus, the Christ, who is fully divine, but yet shockingly, surprisingly, he's also fully human. Resurrected, transformed, immortal, imperishable. Yes, all of those things, just like we'll be when we're raised from the dead. He reigns as the mediator between God and man. He serves as our parakletos, our advocate with the Father. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. I mean, it's quite a vision he's had, right, of the beasts and then the beasts being destroyed and then about uh, this son of man figure. My spirit was within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. He said, the four great beasts are the four kingdoms that shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High. Listen to this. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's Psalm 8, isn't it? Now, wait a second. Is it, is, it the, is it the Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, who will receive the kingdom and will reign forever, forever and ever? Or is it the saints of the Most High? Yes, it's both. Yes, Jesus has already received the inheritance with him. We will share that inheritance. Isn't that what Paul says? We'll be glorified with him if now we suffer with him? That we will reign with Jesus? We'll be given the kingdom? And so to this captive and this exile and this slave who's living in Babylon and in Persia, God says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Because I will take the power and the dominion and the glory and the honor from the beasts and I'll give it to my holy ones. I'll give it to my saints. And the first one is this son of man who will even begin to reign before that. Now, look down at verse 25. Because he's still concerned about this fourth beast, especially about this little horn that keeps bragging about great things. It says about the horn, verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. Not only have men arisen like this, Men like Antiochus Epiphanes who outlawed following God and following the law in, in Judah for a, quite a while. Other rulers and leaders have arisen this way that are like that little horn. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The whole book of Daniel, just like the book of Revelation. If people want to know, what does Revelation mean? It means we win. It means Jesus wins. It means God's people win. It means the beasts don't conquer forever. It means their time is short. 
It means that it will be taken away from them and given to the holy ones. Verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, God's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The message to Daniel is the same message to us. Don't be anxious. The Son of Man reigns. See, in Daniel's time, it was something in the future. In fact, it was so far in the distant future, he was told, seal it up. It's, this is a ways off. <laughs> but for us, it is our current reality. The Son of Man reigns. The Son of Man reigns. Your mediator between God and us reigns. Your advocate reigns. You have a representative with the Father. We not only will win, we're winning. The fate of evil has already been sealed. Something has happened and something is happening, a current reality that is different than it was before. See, for us to think that after Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, everything pretty much went back to normal for God, nothing could be further from the truth. We didn't have, humanity did not have the advocate before the incarnation that we have now. Humanity did not have the high priest that we have now. Humanity did not have the king that we have now. Something has changed forever. And the question is, are we living in that reality? Have we embraced that truth? Don't be anxious. The Son of Man reigns at the Father's right hand. The future glory, honor, and dominion of God's people is already sealed. We win, church. We win. We win. We've already won. And so our moment of truth question is this. Will you resolve to live with the courage and the conviction of knowing your father is God and your elder brother? So Hebrews 2 says... He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Your elder brother is the son of man who ascended to the throne. Doesn't that change everything? If, if you knew, let's say you were in a foreign country or something, and, and you were just walking around, but your big brother was the king of that country, you'd walk around a little bit different, wouldn't you? Maybe not arrogant, maybe not, you know, trying to pull your weight, but you'd have a confidence and a courage to know this is home. My brother reigns as king. Imagine. Imagine the way we could love our neighbor if we really had this courage and conviction. Without fear. Why would we be afraid of anything? What can man do to us? Our father is God and our elder brother is the son of man who reigns at the father's right hand. What can man do to us? We could... We could love without anxiety. We could love without fear. We could love without bitterness. We could love without racism or nationalism because our common representative, our elder brother, is bringing all of humanity 
together and representing us. This is our story. This is our song. This is our reality. This is our confidence. This is our conviction. Imagine the holiness with which we would live if we really lived with this kind of courage and conviction. Because temptation loses its allure in light of this truth, doesn't it? These momentary gratifications of the flesh, when we really stop and think about who are we? What do we have? What are we promised? What's happening here? Then these little enticements, they lose their allure in light of the gospel. But also our confidence knowing that we're forgiven That's what John wants us to know in 1 John chapter 2. That's how he applied this truth. He said, listen, I'm writing these things to you, dear children, so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And and so many times we, we sit here in shame and guilt and remorse, wondering, have I really been forgiven? Jesus sits there, at the Father's right hand, assuring you, yes, if you're mine and you follow me and you walk in the light as I am in the light, you are forgiven. So walk in and live in that sort of courage and that sort of conviction, knowing that God really is your father and your elder brother really does reign as the son of man at the right hand of God. This changes everything. This is the reality that we're stepping into when we're baptized into Jesus, being clothed in the Messiah, being reborn as a part of this new humanity that starts now. We start to live as this new humanity, not just someday in the future, but right now we're reborn to be filled with the Spirit's love and joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. We begin to live out that new humanity now. But if any of us have sinned, and we have, haven't we? We've lost our way. We've forgotten who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. We remember that we have an advocate. And we remember that we also intercede for each other. Confess our sins one to another. Pray for each other. Help each other. Encourage each other. So let us pray with you. Maybe you're ready to be baptized into Jesus. Maybe you just need help carrying some of your burdens. Our shepherds would love to pray with you and talk with you after service. Or right now, all of your brothers and sisters would love to encourage you any way we can. So now's a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing.